Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join, join us inside the morgue. And welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. And for this episode, it's only fitting since we did the original Miami and Vegas that we now talk about New York. That is CSI New York. We're dissecting season six, episode 10, titled Death House. So the opening of this episode is a bunch of people just calling 911. And one of those calls stands out because it's a call going to 911 saying to hurry to a penthouse quickly. So we then see the SWAT team, police, and the CSI team arrive at the penthouse, and they find a mummified corpse. The corpse is dressed in a full three-piece suit that looks very dated. The place has not had electricity in decades, and Stella, one of the investigators, says that it's too humid in New York for mummification to occur. So we'll give a green flag for this, because under normal circumstances, humid air allows bacteria to grow, which causes a mummy skin to go black and gelatinous. Therefore, the skin would have too much moisture from the humidity for the mummification process to occur. But temperature, humidity, and pH levels all operate simultaneously, and the conditions in the room must have been desert dry to cause this type of postmortem change. Mac, another member of the CSI team, says that there is no evidence of putrefaction by microorganisms. For those that don't know, putrefaction is the process of decay or rotting in the body. There's nothing to indicate the presence of rodents or maggots feeding on the body. You could tell if there were rodents present because there would be scoring and furrows, which are scratches across the surface of the bones. Scoring usually occurs in the form of parallel lines, and furrows leave deeper grooves than scoring and are generally located on the ends of bones. Rodent markings are distinguishable from carnivorous markings by the straightness of the grooves. They could tell there were no maggots present by the lack of flies and because of the soft tissue not being eaten away. The owner of the property was a man named Sam Harding. He left the penthouse 80 years ago and sealed off the penthouse ever since. If the mummy is the only one in this penthouse, who was the 911 caller? How does a dead guy call 911? I'd love to know. How was the mummy? <laughs> I just want to know. How did this mummy... Call 911. The team is still at the scene and they photograph the body as it is found with a flash and proper lighting, which is all a green flag. You always photograph the body, whether it's at a scene or on the autopsy table, as is and before you start to move the body or undress it. They look through the mummy's suit pockets and bag the belongings as evidence. Now, our investigators will look to see if the decedent has anything on them and noted at the scene, but they usually leave anything in the pockets, and then we will collect it at autopsy and photograph it at our photo setup that we have in the morgue, which is an awesome photo setup. I love our photo stand. We worked so hard on it for like yeah. a couple weeks, maybe even like a month. We have three flashes. Our camera is on a really nice tripod setup. It's perpendicular to our table, which we have like a plexiglass over top of a blue thicker piece of poster board. So the blue white balances the image. And then we have the lights bouncing off of white poster boards. So everything is illuminated. There's no shadows. We don't have any excess blood in our pictures, so you could show them to a jury if needed because juries hate to see that blood exists. Mm -hmm. Can't have it. It all looks very crisp and very clean. We're very proud of our photographs. 
So basically anything that the person had on them, including a wallet, any credit cards, cash or jewelry, etc., will be photographed and accounted for. So Flack, another one of the investigators, comes in and says he figured out how the dead guy called 911. They go into another room and see a broken skylight with rope coming down into the room. They are surprised that they are just now finding out that someone broke in. And Flack says that his guys swear the room wasn't even there during their first go around, which is super weird. How did they not notice an entire room? We'll find out later. <laughs> We're not going to spoil anything yet. <laughs> Don't worry. They tell us. I'm not going to spoil it just yet. Because I actually, I had a lot of fun watching this episode. This was a fun episode to watch. <laughs> it was just so fun. I was so into it. So who calls 911, says that they're dying, and then cuts out right before help can arrive. Stella suggests that the person who broke in called 911, but Flack is confused why someone would break and enter and then turn, quote, good Samaritan. But Stella says that she doesn't think burglary was the motive because the penthouse was full of antiques and it should have been picked clean if there was a burglary. They think that whoever broke in was there for something else. At the morgue, the mummified man is being examined. They carefully undress him and we see several wounds on his sides. We see a quick flash of what appears to be an x-ray in a cheesy CSI montage, which I do live for, cheesy CSI montages. I love cheesy montages. They're my favorite thing in life. We like the cheesy graphics of all the science happening. Everybody's <laughs> doing a different job. Yeah. Everybody's like typing on a computer or looking in a microscope or like holding up a test tube. There's like fading images in. Holding up a test tube of a serious <laughs> liquid. Just like, oh, what is this? They have their glasses on. Examining it. <laughs> so during this montage, we also see the removal of the man's dentures that are then set aside. And we see a close-up, and these dentures look gray or silver, which is interesting, because I have never seen gray or silver dentures. And in the same cheesy montage, we then see someone at the lab with a piece of broken glass from the skylight at the penthouse. It looks like they are going to try to piece together the pieces of the glass like a puzzle. Another green flag, we've mentioned glass being used as evidence in previous episodes, and they're analyzing the glass for specific break patterns. To do this, specifically for projectiles, you can determine the direction of force by evaluating the radial fractures in the glass fracture's first concentric ring. For this, you use the 4R rule, which is that ridge lines on radial fractures are at right ankles to the rear. The side of the glass opposite of the force is the rear of the glass. Radial fractures are similar to the spokes of a wheel, and concentric fractures connect the radial fractures in a pattern similar to a spider web. For the sequence of force, the first shot's radial fractures will extend completely, while the other shot's radial fractures will be stopped or cut off as they come into contact with prior fractures. Glass analysis is super helpful, and all glass fragments at scene should always be collected and analyzed, because there could be a bunch of clues about what happened during the scene. So, the doc in this CSI New York episode, Sid, is telling the investigators that between 400 and 1400 AD, people believed that mummia had certain powders, and that people would grind up mummy parts and put them on their bodies to get well when they were sick. Love natural remedies, I'm all for that, but that might be a little too much for me to handle. No, it reminds me of, like, back in colonial times, I believe, they thought, I think it was tuberculosis, they thought tuberculosis was actually people being vampires and they were like oh you have to oh my god yeah there was 
one case where a woman, a young woman died and she died in the winter so they couldn't bury her and they kept her above ground in a casket, of course, but it was like freezing cold and then she was the daughter in the family and then the son also got sick and then people in the town were like, oh, she must have been a vampire who got your son sick. Let's look at her remains if they look well preserved or they look fresh. That means she's a vampire. So they opened the casket and because it was like January and freezing cold she she yeah, looked freezing not outside. decomposing so they they were like oh my god she's a vampire and you know what they did they're like the only thing you can do to save this boy is to take out her heart and like grind it up and make him eat it and then he just died quicker because they both had tuberculosis oh god because he was eating an infected heart gosh these idiots <laughs> Mercy Brown was the poor young woman's name who died of tuberculosis. So it's it's like a grave. You can still go visit the woman's grave. And people thought she was a vampire who tried when to really kill her. really, she brother. was just sick. Yeah, she just had tuberculosis. And wow. So that's what when he was talking about mummia and people grinding it up and eating it or like putting it on their bodies to help them heal. I was like, it probably didn't work. Probably made things worse. You probably made all the bacteria that we have today in infections. I know. The fact that humanity has lasted as long as it has <laughs> after all the crazy things I read about. Yeah, like no wonder our mortality rate was so low back then. You know, if people were my age, they'd be like, wow, old lady. She's ancient. She's 29. Geriatric. <laughs> so back in the show, Stella asks what COD, which just means cause of death, is. And Sid tells him that the victim was murdered. The cause was multiple stab wounds, 11 to be exact, and that mummification preserved the wounds. This is also a green flag because mummification does in fact preserve stab wounds and incised wounds, which allows accurate postmortem assessment of the injuries. So they ask Sid if he knows about when the victim was killed, and Sid says that he's just trying to work that out and brings up the dentures. He said they're made out of aluminum and were created for American soldiers in 1917 because they were more durable than vulcanite dentures. Before restorative dental care was available, the only treatment for dental pain was extraction, so a lot of people had dentures back then. And it was also expensive back then for, like, satisfactory dentures, and vulcanite was considerably less expensive than other materials. So for the first time, like, false teeth were no longer a luxury that only the rich could afford. For the soldiers in 1917... The U.S. Army had a dental surgeon who created a new cast aluminum denture called the Amex denture or the war denture. The soldiers needed a type of denture to withstand the hardships of the field and to resist fractures from accidents, so these dentures were inexpensive and easily made. It consisted of an aluminum plate with metal teeth all cast together in one piece, which it's very much how CSI episodes showed it, like the picture that I looked up online, very similar to what they had. So, props to them. These dentures were discontinued in 1918 after the armistice in November of that year, and the dentures today, if you have them or find them anywhere, they're extremely rare, like they're probably in museums. And Sid goes on to say that aluminum can discontinue the body's ability to absorb calcium. Aluminum exposure can also cause the development of breast cancer and Alzheimer's disease. It also prevents bone growth and reduces bone density, and I know phosphorus and radium can do that as well, so if you're not familiar with the tragic story of the radium girls from the 1920s, they worked in a factory that made watches using radium paint, 
and they were unaware that the paint was harmful. And the girls, they would place the brush of the tip on their lips to achieve a finer point when painting, so they were therefore exposed to radium as a result of the paint. They suffered terrible illnesses and eventually died, and several young women, they sued their employers and brought national attention to the safety of workers. The Radium Girls, that's also another show on Netflix, I think, right now. Is it? I know, I think at one point it was on Netflix. It might be on Hulu at this point. Oh my, I have to look into that. But I read the yeah. book. The Mutter has The Radium Girls. Yes. The book. Yes. The Mutter Museum is yeah, a mutter. That's a tragic story. The Radium Girls by Kate Moore. It's the dark story of America's shining women. Because they would literally, like, glow. Yeah. And they, they exhumed some bodies, and I think, like, the bones would glow. And that's how they knew. I know. Also, I think that was the same with Marie Curie, yes! who discovered radium. Yes. She unknowingly exposed herself and also had serious illnesses. Yeah, because it replaces the calcium in your bones, and your bones just start to deteriorate. And it's, yeah. yeah, so scary. It's so tragic. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, back in the show, Sid says that based on deterioration of the bone at the gum line, the victim was murdered five to six years after he got his new teeth, which would put death around 1923. Flack comes in asking if they have an ID on the body. Sid says he assumed it was the owner of the penthouse, Sam Harding. But Flack says it can't be Harding because he died of pneumonia 30 years ago and he's been buried ever since. So they now have a John Doe and Sid is determined to figure out who it is. They don't show the team cleaning the bones, but we see Sid x-raying the mummy's clean skull. And this is a whole process for cleaning bones. I have done this. I've only done it once, but I have done it. This was before you started working, like a month or two before. I was going to say, I haven't done it. It's yeah. a very long process. It probably mm-hmm. took me a week to do like a, an almost full skeleton. You need pretty warm or hot water and a little bit of dish soap, uh, and you soak the bones in water for at least three to four days, and you can put the bucket or the bowl on a hot plate, and that helps continuously heating the water, and honestly, the smell was so awful. I can't imagine. <laughs> decomp, compared to this, this is worse than a, than the decomp smell. Damn. It's just like a lingering smell, like you're you're just soaking dead flesh. I was gonna say, you're boiling, like, I'm bo- decomp I was boiling flesh dead flesh. Yeah. And the water, so the hot water just makes all of the soft tissue fall off of the bone, and it makes it a lot easier to clean, and I've also, you use a toothbrush or a scrubber, to help take the tissue off, but can't use metal instruments. We don't like using metal instruments for cleaning bones or getting bullets out of heads because, (laughs) again, you can create an artifact that wasn't originally there and that could interfere with the anthropology exam. That's a whole thing. But yeah, the one that I did, it was John Doe, and he had nothing to go off of. He was basically bones. Like, he was so facially unrecognizable, very deteriorated, and we needed to do an anthro exam. So I had to clean the bones so she could do her thing. And yeah, it took me like a whole week to clean basically the whole skeleton. Because I've seen cases since working in forensics where it's like, they're basically almost fully a skeleton. Like, this, they're so decomposed that the skin is, like, falling off. Mm-hmm. And now I'm just imagining taking those remains and boiling them. <laughs> just, like, the smell. This is going to sound really weird. If you're, not in, if you're not in the field of forensics, you just don't get it. But, like, taking off whole pieces of flesh from the bone all at once is very, very satisfying. I feel like our listeners are probably, they understand. If you're listening to this podcast, you understand. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's just, it's very satisfying watching it all come off at once. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. (laughs) 
Man, it was right before I started. <laughs> I want to say maybe it was like November or so of last year, maybe December, something around that. Anyway, in their lab in the show, they have some kind of futuristic light orb in the background. I have no idea what this is supposed to be, so I'm giving this a red flag because I seriously think this is something that they just made up for the show. It looks like a Halloween decoration to me. Like, have you ever seen... It's like a... It looked like a fake, like, crystal ball that I'd see in, like, a haunted house. Yes! <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Or one of those things, like, one of the, like, static electricity, you put your hand on it and the, the electrodes come up. <laughs> like, yes! Yes! You poke it and you feel like a sorcerer. Yeah, yes! That's, That's definitely what, what their was. props department used. If someone out there listening knows what this was in a forensic sense, let us know. If it exists in the forensics world, I need to know. So, I feel like... Like, yeah, they definitely made this up for the show. We, I've never seen something like this at any morgue I've been to. All two of them. I'm going to go buy one at Party City and bring it into our morgue. <laughs> <laughs> but a real x-ray for a skull would come up as a normal x-ray image. And you could also put the skull through a Lodox machine, which could also give you an even better quality image uh, of the skull, either AP or laterally. And a Lodox provides a full body x-ray. It's kind of similar to a CT, but they're not exactly the same but it produces the same uh, result. And the orb displays the image of the x-ray and it imports it to the computer where the CSI tech looks at it and is doing facial reconstruction. So digital facial reconstruction uses certain points on the skull and helps create a possible facial model. This type of technology uses 3D geometric modeling techniques and takes traditional facial reconstruction techniques and digitizes everything. But using this procedure for cases is relatively slow and very expensive. So they run the facial image through a missing persons database and immediately get a positive ID. So I'll also give a red flag here because I highly doubt that a match would come back that fast. There's millions of names and millions types of data to scan through. And I feel like this could take days, maybe even weeks to get through everything. But they get the match and the victim was one of the first venture capitalists named Walter Jones. The tech thinks he could have been as big as Rockefeller or Vanderbilt if he hadn't been murdered. Investigator Mack says that it looks like a lot of people wanted him dead. They also find 19 court records of lawsuits against the man, and one of them was filed by an inventor named, pause for a dramatic effect, none other than Sam Harding, the owner of the penthouse. Who would have guessed? Apparently, Jones put up seed money for Harding's invention business, but the deal went sour when Harding filled a patent infringement lawsuit in 1923, but it was later dismissed. Jones was reported missing shortly after, so it sounds like Harding killed Jones out of revenge. They just solved an 86-year-old murder, but they still don't know who tried to break into the penthouse and who made the 911 call. So we cut to Stella going into the lab, asking Adam what he has for her. Adam says he reconstructed the skylight glass and lifted several usable prints. So the easiest method for lifting a print is called dusting, in which you use a very fine powder that sticks to the oil in the fingerprint. So once the fingerprint becomes viable, you can lift it from the surface with clear tape or transfer it to another surface to then take to the lab for analysis. He says the print belongs to a man named Richard Lawson and he had two prior charges for breaking and entering. Adam then says that what he broke into the penthouse for, he couldn't carry out. We learn that before Harding died of pneumonia, he set up a trust to take care of his home and keep it empty. Not even the building's super or maintenance would go in. That way, no one would find Walter Jones's body inside. But last week in present-day CSI time, the rule against perpetuities went into effect, which stops dead people from being able to own property forever. 
So this means that the penthouse was about to be put up for auction by the state. Lawson, the burglar, makes his living by getting a jump on the competition. Two years ago, he had broken into a foreclosure in the Hamptons. Places that he doesn't break into, he appraises as a real estate agent and makes a ton of money on the sale. They want to bring him in for questioning, but there is a problem. They can't find him. One of the crime scene techs comes in and says they should check the penthouse again for Lawson, because when he processed the static lifts from the scene, he lifted footprints with directionality. I think what he means when he says static lifts is actually electrostatic fingerprinting. This works by applying an electrostatic charge on a piece of lifting film, which is placed over the latent print. Lifting film is exactly what it sounds like. It is a black piece of film, and it's rolled over either a shoe impression or a fingerprint. The film picked up and holds dust of the latent print. The print is viewed by the film with a special light source, which makes the impression visible. The direction of the shoe print goes toward the entrance of the room, but there is no impression coming out, and no one went back up that rope coming from the skylight, and no one used the door to leave it since it was bolted from the inside. So they ran Lawson's phone records to confirm that he did, in fact, call 911. They replay the 911 recording, and he was calling for help and sounded very distressed. The call was made six hours ago, and he may still be in the penthouse. At the penthouse, we see Flack and the team searching everywhere they may have missed, like the attic. They check every room, every crawl space, anywhere else. Someone may hide a dead body, but they can't find anything. Mac thinks he has to be there because there's no proof of him leaving. Because no one saw the utility room in the first search, there may be other secret rooms in this penthouse. They start destroying the plaster wall, and they find concrete behind it, which is pretty thick. Mac thinks it means there's a hidden passage someone in the room steps on a tile and suddenly a booby trap weapon swings down from the ceiling and almost hits Stella. Mac tells them to move towards the door carefully. He places a statue in the spot where Stella was standing to reveal a pressure trap sensor on the floor. After the weapon kills a person, the pressure will be gone and the weapon will retract back into the ceiling. They keep the pressure on the trigger to get a closer look at the weapon and see blood on the spikes of the weapon, which line up with the odd stab wounds on the mummy of Walter Jones. This swinging axe is their murder weapon for that murder. There is a lifted tile on the floor, and Stella goes to pull it up carefully. They find out that the tiles slide like a child's number puzzle, which, by the way, I used to love those as a kid. The little slidey puzzles. They are so fun. But these pieces on the floor create an image. The last piece of the puzzle is right where the pressure trigger is, so whoever solved the puzzle would be impaled with this swinging bed of knives. So Sam Harding was an inventor, so they believed the entire penthouse was his, quote, greatest creation. So they have to play the game to find Lawson, or his body, because he is likely one of the victims of the booby trap and stuck somewhere in this penthouse. Mac Video calls the two lab techs from the penthouse, and the lab techs are looking at blueprints and floor plans of the penthouse. They say the blueprints are useless because everything has been changed around the inside of the penthouse since the blueprints were made. They find a ledger article from 1922 saying that Harding paid a lot of money to have some serious renovations done. It was a two-year, 300,000 project, which is more than 4 million by today's standards. He also hired different contractors to do the renovation in stages, so no one but him really had any idea what was going on or what the finished project would be. Mac asked them to find an updated floor plan if one exists. The team is wondering if Walter Jones knew the stakes of playing Harding's games and if he was forced to play or if he went in not knowing the end prize, which is literally death. Hey, you solved this puzzle. Now you're impaled. They think the room they're in has a theme. The puzzle on the floor is an angel, and the weapon kind of looks like angel's wings, except with blades. So, the angel on the floor is pointing towards a bookstand. 
Stella opens the book on the bookstand, and all the pages are blank except one that has a riddle. The riddle is, if a red house is made of red bricks and a blue house is made of blue bricks, what is a green house made of? The answer is glass. There are two vases in the room that look to be made of glass. Stella goes over to one of the vases and licks her finger and runs it along the rim and creates a musical note. She says this means it is crystal because, quote, crystal sings. When you run your fingers around the crystal, this gives energy to the molecules in the crystal, which makes it vibrate. So this vase isn't glass, meaning the other one must be the answer to the riddle. She does the same thing with the other vase and nothing happens. So she pulls the vase like a lever and the bookshelf opens to reveal a secret passageway. At the lab, they are reconstructing shards of plastic that they had found in Walter Jones's pocket at the scene. It is an old phonograph cylinder, one of the first mediums for reproducing and recording sounds. There are scratches in the grooves, and they'll have to dig those out to get it to play. There are initials on it, too. The initials are SH, assuming for Sam Harding, but it was found on Walter Jones, so it is possibly something that Sam didn't want to get out that Walter was trying to steal. Back at the penthouse, Mac and Stella have entered the room behind the bookshelf and are carefully looking around. They see the same chair that is painted in the portrait in the foyer, but the chair and everything else in the room are in different locations than that in the painting. Everything has been rearranged. They take a picture on Stella's phone of the painting and bring it back to the secret room. They then wonder if the puzzle for this room is putting everything back the way that it is in the painting. They begin to rearrange the room and after they finish, nothing happens. So there's something that they're missing. Mac realizes that you need to sit in the chair for the puzzle to be complete. When he sits down, another secret door opens. Stella then says that she can smell burned flesh, which I can say from experience does have a very certain smell to it. You know it. Yeah. I'm gonna ruin more food for you guys, but it does smell like barbecue. See, this is where being a vegetarian comes in handy because <laughs> I don't eat barbecue. <laughs> but yes, uh, we've had, Alice and I have done a few burn victims and fire accidents and that smell is very, it lingers and it stays in, in the morgue for hours and days. Yeah, and it sticks on your clothes. Yes, you smell like a barbecue for the rest of the day. Yeah. For most of these fire cases, we have like metal pails, like empty paint cans almost, and we'll put the clothes in there to kind of like contain the smell. Mm -hmm. They carefully enter the secret chamber to find a body on the floor in a pugilistic pose. So this is very common for fire deaths. It's a boxer-like body posture of fixed elbows and knees and clenched fists, which is caused by the shrinkage of body tissue and muscles due to dehydration caused by the heat. They believe that this body is Lawson. Stella photographs the deceased burn victim and a CSI tech comes in to help investigate. Max says they don't know what this room is, but whatever it is, it burns the victim alive. They believe that the victim is Richard Lawson, but they won't be able to confirm that until the autopsy. The CSI tech says that the victim is burned to the core, so he believes that it had to be at least 300 degrees Fahrenheit minimum in the room. How could he tell that just from looking at him? I don't know. He just looks at him and he's like, he just knows this information off the top of his head that it had to be this degree to do that damage. Yeah. Not even that, just like looking at him from the outside and being like, he's burned to his core. Like, how can you. Honestly, he didn't look extremely burned or like he wasn't charred from what they showed in the episode he just looked like he had a lot of Mm -hmm. burned flesh on him but he wasn't charred yeah did he have a thermometer i don't think so i think he was just spitting facts okay but they were wrong wrong facts (laughs) he just knew (laughs) 
<laughs> he just like he's he like flicks his finger and puts his finger up in the air and he's like 300 300 degrees <laughs> there's a lot wrong with the csi tech when he comes in for the scene but typically for fire deaths in, at least in our morgue we test for carbon monoxide levels in the body, soot or smother in the airway that could tell if the person was either dead or alive before the fire started. And we always look at the burns on the body, which could also tell if the person was dead or alive because you can see very specific patterns. And I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's different patterns on the burns. And it's like the body is trying to heal itself while the body's dying simultaneously. One of our doctors told us about that. But we also, we always look at the location that the body was found at the scene, if they were near a heat source, and we always look at the items found on or near the body. So this CSI text says that the victim died from pulmonary edema, which we've stated before, it's where there's fluid in the lungs, and the text says that he drowned before he was burned. So here's another red flag, specifically for this tech alone. Because I don't know how he could tell that it was pulmonary edema with no autopsy and the fact that he literally just walked in, looked at the body for less than a minute, and then says this. It's, no, you absolutely cannot determine that alone. You could, like, guess. You'd be like, oh, I think this would cause pulmonary edema. You can sometimes get an idea if pulmonary edema is involved because there's a foam cone. So a foam cone is essentially when there's like a foamy fluid that extrudes from the mouth and nostrils, and this is a consequence of anoxia or a lack of oxygen. But this can also be seen in overdoses as well, not just drownings. So I really, I don't know how he was able to tell that. He must have a gift of some sort. Same way he could tell that it was burned to the core without a thermometer. Exactly. Stella wonders how Lawson got into the secret chamber without rearranging the furniture because everything in the room that they were just in was out of place when they got there and they had to rearrange it themselves to get in. Mac thinks that this means there's more than one way to get into the room. He's able to pry open one of the panels on the wall and slide it over, revealing a closet in yet another room. So Lawson must have entered the room that he died in from this secret closet entrance, but why couldn't he get out? They see a sealed fireplace in the room that runs on gas, They walk into the room where Lawson died and see a vent that was connected to the sealed fireplace, meaning they found the heat source that burned him. Harding was meticulous when he designed this place. Heat rises, so if he was using forced air, he would have put the vent down by the floor. So there has to be something else. Max scans the room and finds that the walls are made of lead steel alloy, which would keep the heat in. The middle panel was copper, which is a heat conductor. So, this means that Harding's intent with the room was to cook his victims to death. The CSI techs cut off the skin of Lawson's fingertip to get his fingerprints, and he uses the fingerprint scanner to confirm the identity. They were able to confirm that the burned victim was, in fact, Richard Lawson. However, the prints that were picked up from the static lift don't match Lawson, so there has to be somebody else in this penthouse. Another person stuck in this penthouse? (laughs) Somewhere in one of these hidden rooms. (laughs) The tech in the room sees a phone hanging on the wall that's dangling off the hook. He hangs it up without thinking anything of it, but as soon as he does that, the door slams shut, locking him in. He tries banging on the walls to get the rest of the team's attention, then the walls start closing in. Again, another one of my worst fears. Well, being cooked alive as walls are closing in on me. Yeah, no. No, thank you. Not it. Mac thankfully hears him screaming and is trying to pry the door open from the closet, and he props it open just in time to get him out. Another tech comes into the scene to let the team know that he thinks someone else might be trapped in the penthouse because of the other set of prints that don't match Lawson's. 
These prints were next to the shoe impression that was lifted, and they figured when the intruder broke in through the skylight, they jumped from the rope and used their hand to break their fall. Danny, another CSI tech, checked Lawson's phone records, and he saw that he called his house just before he called 911. He left a voicemail that he was trapped and needed help. Lawson lived with his girlfriend, Paula Davis. Danny looked into her, and she hadn't shown up for work, and she's missed her lunch and two other appointments. There was a fiber found on the broken windows that didn't match the clothing that Lawson was wearing, meaning they came from someone else's clothes. That, combined with the unknown prints, confirms that somebody else came in through that window. Flack calls from outside the building to ask Mac if there's any water leaking in the penthouse. Mac says no, and Flack says that he's downstairs with a tenant who is complaining of a water leak coming from above her. But the water has been shut off in the penthouse for years. Mac puts together that if Paula is up in the penthouse, she could be drowning, which is causing the water to leak down to the tenant below. Adam sends the blueprints for the apartment below the penthouse to Danny. Danny and Flack are in the apartment with a leak, and Danny thinks a chemical breakdown of the water will help find the source of the water. He scans it and says the oxygen peak is quite low, like the sample hasn't been exposed to the air for a very long time. Oxygen-depleted water is most likely from an aquifer, and if the water is coming from the penthouse, it must have its own water supply, maybe a tank. Mac and Stella are upstairs in the penthouse and go to the northwest corner of the apartment where the leak is coming from. They find the bedroom and enter carefully, but don't see water anywhere. Mac calls Danny downstairs and kicks the floor so that Danny can lead them in the right direction. He tells them to walk west 10 feet. The floor is still dry, so they think the water must be behind the wall. Mac knocks on the wall and calls for Paula Davis, and a faint knocking returns. Paula is trapped in the wall, drowning, and still alive. This is a penthouse of nightmares. They wire a camera through the wall and see Paula struggling to keep her head above water. She's losing air and going hypothermic. Hypothermia is when your body loses heat faster than it can produce it, causing a dangerously low body temperature. If your body temperature falls below 95 degrees, that is a sign of hypothermia, and they need to get a line of oxygen in the room ASAP. They won't be able to bust the wall down quickly enough to get her out, so they have to find out how she got in. They notice on the camera that her pupils are barely responding to light, meaning her muscles are relaxing and she is close to death. Other signs of hypothermia include reduced circulation, exhaustion, lack of coordination, and weakness in your pulse. They pump oxygen into the wall and are trying to find ways to enter wherever Paula is trapped. Nothing is happening and the water inside where Paula is trapped is 72 degrees. Stella says that at that temperature, the rate of survival is 3 to 12 hours, and Paula got the call from Richard Lawson 11 hours ago, so time is almost up. If they are lucky, they have one hour to save her. Mac notices that there is a big chandelier in the room, but no light switches. It's another riddle, and they have to figure out how to turn on the light. Stella notices a small window high up and says it's an odd size in an odd place for the only window in the room. The drawers below in the dresser, below the window, are actually stairs, so Mac uses them to climb up and open the window, but nothing happens. The skyscraper outside the window wasn't there when Harding designed the penthouse, and it's blocking the sun that would otherwise be coming through the window. They need to find a way to get light through the window and onto the chandelier. Back at the lab, the tech got the phonograph cylinder that was in Walter Jones's pocket to work, and a song started playing. Over the song, Harding's voiceover says that it is a song of lies, betrayal, and heartbreak. He says that a song is no substitute for real suffering, and that is why he invited Jones to his home. Harding says that everything he worked for, Jones stole and sold it to the highest bidder and kept the money. Harding designed his apartment to be a lesson in pain. 
Back in the penthouse, Mac is shining a light from the angle of the window around the room, and it hits the light on the chandelier, which is a familiar color. It is a UV filtering oxide, meaning Harding turned the chandelier into a primitive UV light. This is a green flag because UV, or ultraviolet light, allows forensic investigators to examine clues and recover evidence that could not be previously detected. UV light is concentrated in a certain area and illuminates the evidence, which could include bodily fluids, wounds, bruises, fingerprints, signatures, and ink stains. Stella can see something written on the wall in the UV light. It's another riddle about a grandfather clock. So they go to the grandfather clock in the hall and turn the key to start time. They run back to the bedroom, and a painting that had been hanging above the bed bursts open and water comes rushing out, as does Paula. The team goes to her aid, and she's still alive. So, but I don't know about you... I do know about you. I'm talking to our listeners. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but when all of these secret rooms were discovered in that penthouse, all Alice and I could think of was H.H. H. Holmes. Yep. So this episode of CSI New York was definitely based on Holmes's murder castle. Also, fun fact, I know I'm a fan of American Horror Story, but season five, Hotel, was also inspired by H.H. H. Holmes. But anyway, H.H. H. Holmes was actually born Herman Webster Mudgett in New Hampshire in 1861. In 1885, he abandoned his wife and children and moved to Illinois, where he changed his name to Holmes, allegedly as a homage to Sherlock Holmes. And from that point on, he was better known as Dr. Henry Howard Holmes. He actually traveled to Philadelphia and got a job as a keeper at the Norristown State Hospital. And we know the area, and it's a pretty open, very gated-off area. And then after that, he moved to Chicago, and then soon after, he started working at a pharmacy. And it's important to note that at the same time that Holmes was in Chicago, it was also the time of the 1893 World's Fair. This exposition attracted 27 million visitors to Chicago. Holmes took advantage of many of these visitors in the city, particularly young women looking for jobs at the fairground. It was also believed that Holmes stole money from his employees at the drugstore. With this money, he bought an empty lot in the Englewood neighborhood of Chicago and built a labyrinth structure that had shops on the first floor with apartments above. This became better known as his murder castle. Fictional accounts report that Holmes constructed the hotel-slash-apartments to lure his tourists in in order to murder them and sell their skeletons to medical schools which was a very big That's thing. That's Burke and Hare. They're confusing stories. That's a real story with Burke and Hare in Scotland. They actually did. I know that that's a big thing back then. Like, people were yeah. selling skeletons and bodies yeah. to medical schools to make a quick penny. Yeah, it was probably, yeah, it was in the, I think, 1860s was Burke and Hare in Scotland. They were, they actually, they had a tenant house and, like, people would come visit and they would murder them and sell it to medical schools. So that's probably why people were thinking this because it probably just happened. But so there was no evidence that he lured his like strangers into his hotel but he did ha actually have a history of selling cadavers to med schools but those bodies oh he did he acquired those bodies from grave robbing that's how Burke and Hare started actually no Burke and Hare didn't start that way a lot of people did that but that's a lot of people did they were like the resurrectionist is what they call themselves but they were just grave robbing yeah that's a whole story for another time we could do a whole mini episode on that if we wanted Ooh, we should. anyway this space featured soundproof rooms secret passages and disorienting mazes of hallways and staircases other accounts claim that the hotel was made up of a hundred rooms and laid out like a maze with doors opening into brick walls windowless rooms and dead-end staircases the rooms were also allegedly outfitted with trapdoors over chutes that dropped Holmes's unsuspecting victims to the building's basement. 
The basement was filled with acid vats, pits of quicklime, which is used on decaying corpses, and that it also had a crematorium. Reports suggest that Holmes killed as many as 200 people in his lair, but it's unknown to this day just how many people he actually killed. Holmes was apprehended soon after he fled Chicago in October of 1893, following the conclusion of the World's Fair. He was arrested in Boston and eventually suspected of murdering his assistant and two of his assistant's children. After a brief incarceration, Holmes was hanged for his crimes in Philadelphia in 1896. His body is buried in Holy Cross Cemetery in Yadin, PA. There were also rumors that Holmes escaped his capital punishment and that he bribed authorities, allowing him to escape to then hang another person in his place. In March of 2017, Holmes's descendants, who live in Delaware, petitioned to have his remains exhumed so they could do DNA testing on the body. His casket was buried and covered in cement to ensure that his body wouldn't be vandalized, and because of this, his clothes actually remained in very good condition and his body had little decomposition. Eventually, the body was positively ID'd by his teeth, and he was then reburied. So, the body was his, the rumors were false. As for the murder castle, in 1895, it was gutted by fire, and it remained standing until 1938 when it was torn down. Now, it is the Englewood Branch Post Office. Just a post office now? Just a casual post office. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that I mean, yeah. the story about Holmes is crazy. I need to read more about it. I know, I know, like the basics of H. H. Holmes, and I've I've been fascinated with the story. They've made a bunch of like little documentaries on Netflix. Yeah, it's horrifying. His poor, his poor victims. He had chilled the children. Yeah, he murdered his assistant's children, and authorities actually found children bones that were close in age to what his kids would have been. No. Yeah. Oh my god, that's sick. But yeah, seriously, like, nobody knows exactly how many people he killed. It could have been, like, nine, could have been 50, 200, like they say. Which is all too much. All too much for one person to do. But that's the end of our episode. We tallied a total of five green flags and three red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of CSI New York does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Thanks for hanging out. And if you enjoy our podcast, don't forget to share it and hit us up on Instagram or Twitter and DM us with any show suggestions. See you next week for a brand new section. Bye. Bye.